Welcome back, folks, to Unstandardized English. My name is JPB Gerald, and I am what? What am I? I'm an educator. I'm a theorist. I'm a person who has opinions, who feels like he needs to record them for the public. Uh, but this show is a podcast where we seek justice in some way, shape, or form for the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized. So this episode, I think, is an interesting one. I've been sort of hoping to to do this one for a little while because um, I found the guest really interesting. Um, and before I get into the guest, um, I want to talk a little bit about writing. So I know I've talked a lot about writing on here. But one of the parts of writing that we all know we have to do is editing. Um, and there's different versions of editing, right? You know, when I go, when I'm doing my work for school, for my doctorate, which by the time you listen to this, actually, I should have finished, I think. Um, I'm only, I'm recording this way back in March, um, but my defense is scheduled May 11th, so... If I don't fall on my face between now and then, by the time you hear this, I'll be Dr. Gerald. I'm going to record an episode about that and put it out So, um, after I actually graduate. Anyway, but when I'm doing stuff for school and, you know, my chair is telling me what she wants me to do, that's not really editing. That's revision, right? Which is related to editing. Um, but it's like, give me a new version. And it doesn't necessarily change that much. Revise and resubmit. Then there's um, editing, which to me, that's when I'm just going through things. I'm like, does that flow? Does that sound right? You know? Um, and then there's copy editing. And at my job, or the job that I was doing at least from uh, 2017 for a long time, um, one of the things I hate <laughs> about it is the copy editing process. Um, now, like I said, we have I've had supervisors who were really helpful in terms of their guidance. Like, hey, because we do both written work and visual work, like PowerPoints. So they're like, hey, mm, there's too much on this slide. That to me, that's fine. That's who, who can argue with this? Even if I disagree, it's it's useful, you know, having an extra set of eyes on something. But then we also have a copy editor whose job is to it's really adhere to the style guide that we've developed. And let me tell you, now, some of the stuff, I think, is actually valuable because we are presenting this to not the public, but to clients, and there are certain things we should follow. Our work should be consistent in the sense that I think that um, if we're choosing to use one word to refer to something, we should probably continue to use that word so that we're not confusing people. Um, and if we have a convention for... Um, you know, if we want to highlight information, do we bullet or do we italicize it? I don't know that I necessarily agree with whether something should be bolded or italicized, but I don't think it's a bad idea for a group of people to have agreed that when we want to highlight a um, the name of a, a page on a, on a website, which we might describe, we use bold, but when we want to talk about a certain word, we use italics, right? Cer certain conventions are not in themselves harmful. The problem is people use conventions as a cudgel to beat people over the head with when their languaging does not match the expectations of the people around them, right? That's the pro There's a lot of problems, and we'll talk about this with the guest in a second. Um, so uh, Alex is a radical 
copy editor, radical copy editor. And I don't really know quite what that means. I can guess, but I'm going to ask Alex to tell me about the work because I'm really interested in, you know, I try to break free from sort of editing restrictions myself, mostly by not listening. <laughs> um, and I know maybe that's an arrogant thing to say, but when I got my book back and I edited things, like I was, it was clear that some of the people who were reviewing it had not read the whole thing. You know, there's people who are arguing with me about the, even the title of my book because it's, um, uses the word pathology and whiteness in it, right? And for those who don't know, you'll hear more about it, right? But it's called Anti-Social Language Teaching, English and the Pervasive Pathology of Whiteness. My, I've typed that so many times that my phone predicts what the next word is going to be once I type antisocial, so that's pretty funny. Um, I'm kind of sad because I'm going to get it. My phone is falling apart and I'm coming up on the renewal. Now it's not going to know everything. Oh, well. Anyway, but I knew, I'm like, this person did not respect my work enough to read it, so what do I have to listen to this now? But anyway, um... Aside from that, there's um, there's 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 something about the copy editing process that can really be harmful to people's confidence. I think. So I'm excited to hear from Alex um, about the work because I think. We just assume that copy editing can only be done one way, where you're just looking for errors or you're just looking for spelling mistakes, quote-unquote mistakes, um, and so forth. But I think there's got to be different ways, and Alex is going to tell us all about it shortly. Again, if you enjoy the show, you can support us on Patreon. The link is in the show description. And otherwise, I hope you'll enjoy the episode. Okay. All right. So, folks, uh, I'm here with Alex Capitan, or is it is that right? Is it Capitan? Capitan. Capitan. All right. I'm being. I'm just. I'm trying too hard on the, on the <laughs> pronunciation here. Um, anyway, Alex is a copy editor, but a radical copy editor, and I'm going to learn all about that in a moment. So, if you could tell us a little bit about what you do. And uh, then we'll sort of back up and talk a little bit about just copy editing in general and that sort of thing. That sounds great. Um, so yeah, thanks. My name is Alex Capitan, and I'm a radical copy editor. Um, and what that means to me is that I basically help people use words for good from a perspective of anti-oppressive language and from the sort of the entry point of editing and publishing. Um, writ large but i work with all kinds of different people and all kinds of organizations that want to use their words to help both describe and thus create the world that we want to live in from a, a place of sort of radical politics um and language is a tool for creating reality not just describing reality but creating it um and so much of our status quo is perpetuated through everyday words that people just don't really think twice about a lot of the time and subtle subtle shifts in word choice and the way in which we choose to use language can really create entirely different understandings and help fight oppression <laughs> when done well so that's 
that's a little bit about what radical copy editing means to me. So I think, you know, it's funny because I don't know if you know, when I started this show, that that was not specifically editing, but mm-hmm. the whole point of it was I was going to do this very specific thing where I was going to talk about a word that people thought was neutral and totally. talk about one of some of the issues. And then the first episode I ever did, which is still the most listened to episode, because I think people hear about the show and they're like, let me go to the first one. And I'm like, don't do that. I didn't know what I was doing back then. <laughs> um, but they do that still. Um, and anyway, it was about expats and immigrants. Yes. You know, I love that. And I was and talking- honestly, that's, that's part of what drew me to your blog because, or your podcast rather, because you do take that deep dive into language in a similar kind of nerdy way that I just love. Um, that, that particular episode is such a great, I mean, it's so simple. I think that's why people like it so much because it's such a simple thing. And yet it says so much that one word choice, right? Yes. Here he is. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, I had this whole list of words I was going to do, but then I got distracted as I do do all this other mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, I think about my current job um, and we'll see how long it's current based on what I just told you. But, uh, you know, we have a copy editor as a, a man who is employed as a copy editor. Right. Right. And um, his, so when we write these projects um he's one step of the process it goes to him now i didn't really understand what he was going to be looking for when i first got the job and um turns out we have a style guide which he's basically looking for style guide matching like are we fitting the style guide now it depends on certain things like some of the style guide stuff is about consistency within our projects which i understand like if we like certain things like if we're trying to express that a word is important should we bold or italicize right like that you know okay we should probably not just be haphazard with it but then there's you know um the way that words are used right and i think that the two are both part of copy editing but um, people will use the, you know, like the bolding is whatever, but they'll say, right. because you're not matching this, then, you know, your languaging is not actually acceptable. That's right. Yeah, for the, for the folks listening who may or may not be familiar with the publishing world and the publishing process, the, where copy editing fits into that process is that usually when you're, let's say you're trying to write a book um, and you, you write a manuscript, you start looking for a publisher, um, or maybe you just write a proposal and you want to work with an editor at a publishing house to help develop that proposal into a full manuscript. Either way, the editor that you work with at the publishing house is helping you develop the content of your manuscript. And once you've got a final draft, that's when it goes into the copy editing process, usually. And the copy editing process is just what you just described. It's to sort of help make the, the, the manuscript as consistent as possible internally um, and also follow a particular style when it comes to things like how references are cited and what the headings look like and things like that. And obviously also a copy editor is looking for grammatical correctness and trying to help your sentences 
make sense to as many people as possible. <laughs> but there is, and from there it goes into uh, proofing, which is after it's in layout, and that's just looking for like very minor, tiny things at the very end, and then it gets printed. So there's a couple different editorial stages when it comes to putting together something that goes into print. And what I love to, to do as a copy editor, and I do all different kinds of editing, but I copy editing is where I got started, and so that's sort of my you know my my home. Um, there's so many value judgments and so many norms and and standards that are upheld within that process of just deciding what is the correct way to form a sentence to write a book to put words together and you know do you capitalize b in black do you capitalize w in white those are things that uh different style manuals have different opinions on so there's no universal standard in terms of this is the best way to use the english language unlike french for example which has its own <laughs> has an academy like, government yeah. agency right but english isn't like that it's a completely quirky all over the place kind of language and there's a lot of stuff that's baked into everyday choices around what is considered correct versus, you know, best. And one of my favorite things is just really tracing back, much like you do uh, in different ways, tracing back, why do we think this thing is a rule? And where did this rule come from? And who was this rule set up to serve? So for, from my perspective, people, it's like one of those memes where people are, you know, when it's like what people think my job is, what I think my job is, what what my job actually is. So people think the job of an editor is to be sort of the grammar police and to basically be a police person. The world doesn't need more police, in my experience and, and, and perspective, um, but to like follow the rules and enforce the rules. That's what an editor is. But in my, my in what's really true is that everything is contextual. So a good editor tries to figure out which rules to apply in this particular context. And a radical editor <laughs> tries to figure out where did the rules come from? Who do they serve? Who's harmed by them? And what standards would actually help aid comprehension and also fight oppression? Because, yay, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, I think that there's a lot in there, and I've had this issue a lot of the time when doing academic writing. Right. Um, I, I say that with quotes around it, but I mean writing for academia, um, you know, with journals and that sort of thing. And because like one of the things you have to do, have to, but it's usually done is you volunteer, volunteer to be a reviewer, right? Which is not the right. same as editing. It's not, but no. some reviewers sure think it is. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, I you know, when I do my thing, you know, reviewing i can clearly tell both sometimes the writers say it um and sometimes just from the way that it's written that like okay this person probably learned english later and i right. there's still a part of me that's like mm, i don't know about that over there i'm just like but you understood what he said though didn't you uh or what he meant to say exactly. then then there's times when i'm like i actually don't know i actually don't know what you mean and then i'll ask a question like hey yeah hey what do you mean? <laughs> you know, because sometimes, sometimes and that has nothing to do with person's particular first language or whatever. Sometimes some people say things that, that I, I are not clear. Um, right. And I'm trying to help them get to a, a clearer space, you know? 
Um, whereas there are some people who really want to go in there and just be like this, you know, I had, I had one professor who was like that. I'm like, we're in, we are in doctoral studies. Like, leave me alone. I know how to spell. I mean, I'm not saying that you should, even if the person's younger, but I'm just, or whatever. It's just like this, how on earth does this distract from my point? Unless you can't understand what I'm saying, in which case you should ask like, Hey, what do you mean? Which Right. It's a completely different set of things. But what I'm the reason I'm bringing these two things up is people will say that grammar or spelling will make it impossible for people to understand you. It's like, but you understood them. Right. So you just really yeah. wanted to tell them that they were wrong. Every single, every single, there's so many different grammar norms, different rules, depending on what context you're in. I mean, a classic example, of course, is the fact that there's this rule is prescription against using double negatives in the English language. And there's a really interesting history behind why this is a rule. Um, and, you know, you trace back a lot of rules in English, particularly quirky ones that it seems like the only people who really care about them are editors and English teachers. <laughs> you trace a lot of these rules back and you discover that actually a lot of these rules are literally just the preferences and pet peeves of some really influential, old, dead, cis, straight, affluent, British, white guys who had really strong feelings about how English should be written and spoken several hundred years ago, over the course of several hundred years. So you end up with these prescriptions like not ending sentences with a preposition and not splitting infinitives. Both of those, both of those rules actually came from people in this, like, you know, part of this elite grammar nerd club in Britain who decided that English as a language should be more perfect. And in order to uh, sort of be worthy of England being an empire, a world empire on the level of the Roman empire. So they were, they thought to themselves, Latin is such a beautiful, perfect language. And to them, that was indicative of, you know, and, and related to the fact that the Roman Empire, Empire had been able to be so successful. Of course, that's not <laughs> what so a classic thought, scholar would say. We have to make English more perfect in order for our empire to be as successful, which is just mind-boggling on a certain level. And in order to do that, they then made the leap of thinking, well, English should be more like Latin. And because it's impossible to split an infinitive in Latin, and it's impossible to end a sentence with a preposition in Latin, they said, we're not going to do that. And you're just like, but we do. That's how English works. The grammatical structure of English is completely different from the grammatical structure of Latin. <laughs> but that's what they were trying to do. And I just love that kind of stuff because you trace it back and you, and you realize that the things that have been promoted for generations as this is the best and most, you know, uh, proper way to use this language actually don't make any sense at all and are rooted in elitist notions completely. It, you know, it reminds me of, um, as far as like things not existing in various languages, like, in, you know, certain languages only have so, however many sounds, right? Just in the, right. in the um, alphabet. Right. And um, like I know when I lived in Korea, like they think there's 18 letters in the alphabet, something like that. Right. And yeah, I think Hawaiian only has 10 consonants. I'm not remembering exactly, but 
much fewer. Right. Many fewer continents. Than so ours. then there's certain words that um, I remember being annoyed because you can't say my name in Korean. Mm. And I would get a little bit annoyed because I'm like, but it's not my name. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but I was also like 21, so I, you know, I hadn't really had a full awakening on these things, and I'm just sure. like, but like over there, that that's that, that's, that's my name. Um, and I, um, you know, I think that I didn't have enough power to really do anything besides be kind of annoyed about it. Um, and the difference is when these rules get instituted, it's when people have that same feeling, except they have the power to do something. Exactly. Exactly. Like, I know that feeling. It's, it's an understandable feeling to be annoyed by of certain course. things. It's everybody just, has pet peeves. Yeah, just like but not everybody has access to, like, literally having their pet peeves put down in grammar textbooks and taught. <laughs> like, the first time I ever in, in, encountered a rule like this, I had a client that had a house style guide, and the house style guide said, don't use... Uh, more than uh, or over. Don't use over <laughs> to refer to numerals and numbers. So say more than 5 billion. Don't say over 5 billion, right? Or say less than, you know, whatever, instead of under. That was their rule. And I was like, oh no! Have I just missed this rule this all this time that I've been an editor and I haven't been editing for this and maybe I should have? And I looked it up and I found out no this was somebody's pet peeve. It was uh, the editor of uh, an influential New York uh, newspaper back in the day, <laughs> 150 years ago, 200 years ago, I can remember exactly. And he put out this list of words he hated and things he hated. Um, and it was this long list. And at the top of the list is, I hate it when people use over and under to refer to numerals. Other things on that list, notable other things on that list included I hate it when people say pants instead of pantaloons, right? Like, this is the level of pet peeve. <laughs> and that's, you know, he wasn't the first person to have this pet peeve, but he was the most influential. And because he was friends with all these other editors of major U.S. newspapers and print publications, everyone was like, oh, so-and-so, you know, is knows what he's talking about. We should use it. And that's where this rule came from. Made it into the AP style book. And they didn't take it out until... A couple years ago, I think 2014, they were like, oh, this rule, this rule is actually nonsense. We're not going to make people do this anymore. I, um, I think that there's sort of a, a way to exercise power in, yeah. you know, this whole grammar thing. And this is a conversation mm. I had with a classic scholar, in, I think, on December episode um, or maybe in November. I don't remember. Um, and... She was talking about how Latin is seen as perfect language, but like that's not what the actual Romans would say. <laughs> right, right. You know, you know, like of course there was just messiness. It's just that we have, it's also we have proof of it. It's not like we're making this up. Like there's plenty of proof of them using Latin quote unquote wrong. Um, right. It's just that what ended up in the textbooks and survived, uh, mm-hmm. like you know, is 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 a little bit different. But if you, people walking down the street didn't sound like the textbooks the same way people in, in you know walking down the street now don't sound like textbooks. So fascinating. Um, but I I remember there was this one group of women I met one time, and the first article I wrote that got published hadn't come out yet, right? So nobody knew what it was because it hadn't come out yet. 
And I was talking about the idea in it, the altruistic shield thing, where I was talking about how people in professions um, that have a reputation of being socially good, it can be a challenge for them to sit with being part of white supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. Or sit with whiteness, right? And and, and there's other axes of oppression too, but that's where my research is, right? So, um, and when you bring that up, some people can't deal with it because <laughs> it's just like, but I'm, I'm a teacher, so I'm good. And it's like, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, this group of people, they were all women by chance, but th- that's not important to the story. I'm just describing it. Um, the, uh, I told one of them about my article, which hadn't come out yet. And um, she did this thing that people sometimes do when they don't want to talk about racism is they changed the subject um (laughs) she was just like okay so i get together with these group of women and we 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 call ourselves the grammarinos and we love to just get together and talk about grammar and i'm just thinking to myself like you know i feel like nothing good's gonna come of this conversation (laughs) like i feel we're we're already like (laughs) i'm not sure how you pivoted from that to that um (laughs) And then she t- and then she told me like a racist story, and I'm just like, okay, uh, wow. where she basically said, and I, apropos of I don't know what that when they when the school that she worked for, um, a, a community college, um, was more permissive about who they allowed in, you know, basically like you know it was just so much harder to teach them, and I was like, okay. All right. So I just feel like the people who are really, really obsessed with grammar, and I don't mean studying the linguistics of it, but like enforcing the grammar rules. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a long line to racism. It's not like a, like it's just, it's a nice, nice collocation. Let's put it that way. And I think that the collocation thing is interesting because I think that, um, some of those rules are really better expressed as uncommon collocations, right? Yes. They, like these things don't sit next to each other very often. So therefore okay. it's, they stand out to me and mm-hmm. I understand being like, you know, you turn your head twice, like, wait, wait, what happened? Um, and the question is what happens at that point? Cause like the rea- right. like I never had the, the initial reaction. You can't control it. It's just whatever. You're just like, that is, that is unusual. Uh, it's just what happens right. after what, how does it get from unusual? Like unusual is not a judgment. It's you go from unusual to problem, you know, right. how do you stop it from getting there or, or so from forth. unusual to that's wrong. Right. That's incorrect. Right. right. Exactly. And that was so something- often that, that, Leap is rooted in prejudice. It's rooted in elitism. It's rooted in this idea of, you know, everything about how to speak and write properly can't help but be rooted in class and elitism. Because honestly, like, and this is one of the wonderful things when I was doing a lot of research around this, I I was just, it's it was so validating because I feel like the things that those of us who have sort of been targeted by this idea of, oh, that's not how you're supposed to speak and talk. We know anecdotally, and there's like a felt sense that that's wrong. That's not actually okay. There's something about that that is being weaponized in a very oppressive way. And it's really validating to then do research and find out, oh, interesting. The very first grammar textbooks in English were created as a tool for class mobility. That was literally why they were trying to put down the rules. Because if you could speak proper with quotes, right? If you could speak in a way that could get you access to a different class level in terms of 
wealth, in terms of education, right, all of that, then you might be able to have a better life. So you've got these people who are putting down the rules so that their children might be able to actually gain access to a different system. And then we wonder why, you know, people have these incredibly vitriolic responses to words like irregardless. <laughs> and I, and like, I used to fall for it too, you know? Right. And it's, it's all it's based in is elitism. It's all about who is associated with that word, the people who use that word more often, and all of these stereotypes about certain groups of folks being unintelligent and not wanting to feel like you're being associated with that group of people, whether that's, you know, lower class folks, whether that's people who live in the South, whether that's black folks, right? There's all these different groups that are sort of subjected to these kinds of stereotypes and, and wanting, you know, people wanting to distance themselves from that style of using language. When I think about the pet peeves thing, um, mm. and I try to, I recently had sort of an epiphany on one that uh, used to bother me. And it wasn't something that I think was personally rooted in like a class thing, but it's still, they all are to some extent. Right. So, but then I try and, and I, so I figured something out and then it, it helped, it helped me figure out these reactions in general. Right. There's, so the thing was people will say the impact of whatever cannot be understated, but they'll also, right. they'll also say the impact um, cannot be overstated, and they often mean the same thing, right? Totally. And, and I'm and like it used to bother me. I'm like, but clearly it it, it can be understated because <laughs> because it's such a large impact, right? Right. Um, and then you know, I'm like you clearly mean overstated. So why are you saying understated? Um, <laughs> because like like I, I used to actually be confused. When people do yeah. that, because I just like I was just like, but but you mean over? You're saying the opposite thing. But um, and then I figured out that because I first of all I know what they mean, and I realized that the issue there is not the under and the over. The issue there is actually what people are saying there is not it cannot be understated, but like we should not understate it. Like we sh you yeah. know we should not think of it as being less impactful than it is and then right. once i thought about it being a modal modals are such a mess anyway then i'm just right. like all right once it's a modal issue then i'm like fine whatever and right. i started to work yeah yeah can mean multiple different things right and that's um that really helped me understand that like there are other things that my knee-jerk reaction is whatever but then if i you know i'm sure i haven't excavated every pet peeve I have but <laughs> but like yeah. if I could understand that one is is really just um like a modal thing then I'm like all right you know this is a fluid yeah. thing and so forth and I'm sure there's other ones in there uh you know they just don't come right. up that often and I haven't spent the time trying to figure it out but it's like a, I mean it's a it's a powerful practice to be able to pay attention to those sorts of knee-jerk reactions and then question what's going on here and especially when there's some level of judgment associated with it and i i i, I wish there were more <laughs> more of the people who claim to care about words i wish they cared more about comprehension and care than correctness i'm still here um, i'm just turning my light on <laughs> yeah no problem
ultimately that to me is at the heart of, you know, all of this is trying to help folks use language as a tool for communicating across lines of difference. And if you come at it from that place, then it turns into a question about context and care as opposed to correctness, just for the sake of correctness' sake. Yeah, that, that it's um, because even if that or whatever the pet peeve is, is not me having a personal hatred for any group or something. That's why people sure. get all tied up and like, well, I don't hate whatever. There's no like, like black people say overstated or understated or something like that, right? <laughs> like it's not like a, you know, yeah. but it's always tied to conceptualizations of intelligence. Right, exactly. And it's one of the few things, intelligence, um, that people still feel like it's a purely objective thing. Absolutely. And first of all, it's not, but also like, and and this was what was hard for me because, and I've started to write about this and it's in my book, which isn't out yet, but um, you know, having to try to let go of intelligence as an identity. Um, Like obviously there are certain particular skills that I have, you know, that I match on this test or whatever. Right. Right. Um, But like, you know, if when I was younger and I didn't have as much, just full confidence in various aspects of my life, I could always point to while I'm intelligent. Mm. You see, you can't take that away from me. Um, And, you know, then there's a race thing. It's like, because as a black person, like, you know, (laughs) it's a a lot going in there. I've been talking about this a lot in the show. But, um, you know, what happens if we don't think within that, because people think of intelligence as a spectrum, which mm-hmm. even even though it's not necessarily objective, it's still like, uh, you know, it was, it's a range, is my point. But it's still kind of a binary thing. Totally. Like you're intelligent or you're not. Right? Like, no, you know, he's not like, he's, you know, 42% intelligent. Like, it doesn't work like that. Like, they, you, no, you, people, you can... Humanity loves putting people in binary boxes. Right. right. <laughs> and the, the, the scary thing, and this is also tied to race, at least for me, but for many people, um, and I'm sure gender for, for, for various people, um, is like, if I'm not identifying with intelligence then am I not intelligent? Like, so then what happens right. if it, you know, and, and, and so I say all this to, to go back to the grammar expectations mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. like, if I step out from being intelligent or not, then where does that leave me? And I don't think people yeah. are really willing to, to, to go sit out there because there's still it's like a cottage industry of like, you know, um, IQ stuff, even if you're not, going to school or anything like that you know like yeah. there's just people who i think and i think it's a little bit sad actually because not all of them are like harming people like believing you personally have a high iq does not necessarily mean you're out there harming people but right. you know it's like it's, they're just so tied to it and yes. i like i i get it because i used to be i don't know I didn't, I didn't know what the number was but like i was tied to that idea um, and mm-hmm. giving up on your ide- ideologies is hard, especially if you don't re- replace it with one that's just as rigid. Like, what do you do? You right. just have to figure it out. And that's the scary part. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's right in there. 
Um, and all of the judgments and all of the sort of, <laughs> this is the right way and this is the best way to use language, uh, a lot of them come down to sort of being perceived or not perceived as intelligent. It's not even, I am intelligent or I'm not intelligent. It's about the perception of intelligence to a certain degree. And and some of the struggle that, that I certainly um, grapple with is how do I help folks for whom they have been stereotyped as unintelligent, whether that's because of gender, race, disability, any number of different things, class, you know, even geography, you know, there's this really incredible stuff out there about even accent and how a Southern accent, for example, is, is marked as unintelligent in particular circles. And if you, if you look at like the ways in which Southern accents are used in animated movies, for example, to mark people as less intelligent or, or less progressive or whatever. And it's, it, it's so subtle and yet not at all. It's like very in your face, but this idea that, you know, you have to follow the rules of language just to fight that stereotyped box that you've been put in. Because if, if you end your sentence with a preposition, it will affirm people's, you know, understanding of you as less intelligent based on those boxes. And um, which is just, it breaks my heart as an editor, right? Because I want to be able to help people question the rules and throw out the rules that are based in elitism. But also I have a lot of privilege to be able to do that based on my identities. And I have a lot of friends who need help, you know, fighting from the other side of that divide um, to be seen as intelligent or at least human. Honestly, that's what it comes down to. Right. You know, I, yeah, I think fully human. that um, cause so much you mentioned disability, but like so much of this is, is tied up in who's able you know, right. who's seen as able, because you, with any disability, you know, that cause of disability, it's really, again, the perception of ability. Right. You know, um, there's obviously a difference between an impairment and mm-hmm. the way people are perceived, you know, mm-hmm. and these things are, the perceptions are not, impairments are as, are as old as humans, but, uh, you know, perceptions of them are what 150 200 years old right (laughs) so um the you know being seen as as fully able capable just goes to colonialism and the fact that the people who were able to adopt the colonial language were oh well now that's a human basically you know you know kind of um (laughs) and uh when we think about that um in terms of people today like i get it when the people in, in you know the black community and other communities if they are able to adopt certain mannerisms or i know we're talking about accents or grammar or whatever it is like i understand why they might choose to pursue that for themselves you know i i disagree with the fact that that is what people aspire to but listen to me. I can't really tell anybody <laughs> something mm-hmm. otherwise. Like I sound like this, you know, yeah. I, people, um, I specifically mentioned that I'm black on the podcast because a couple people early on said, why are you talking about these things? And then they realized I was black. <laughs> and so it's not something that people, you know, I don't, and I'm not trying to sound a certain way, right? It's just how I talk. Right. Um, and, it's uh, 
so yeah, like, like I, I understand why people do that. And I'm also not in a position, like you say, to, to be like, no, 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 don't aspire to this. You won't, you, nothing will happen to you if you sound different from other people, because I don't sound that different from other people, you know? Yeah. 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 And you know, it's, it's a whole different level when you have to fight against not only external perceptions of your worth and your intelligence and your humanity, but also the internalized ways in which, you know, you've been taught your whole life, oh, you're not as smart, you're not as worthy, you're not as capable, whether that's because you've been tracked into certain classes in school, whether that's been because people have treated you certain ways, whatever that is, um, there's just so much there, and, and language is tied up in all of that. Um, one of the things I talk about in a lot of the trainings I do is the fact that dehumanization as a specific psychological process is actually rooted in language because the stories that we hear and that we tell about each other actually dictate how we perceive each other. And when people are described over and over and over again in dehumanized ways, that then shapes perception and makes it more likely for folks to look the other way when the folks who are described in those ways suffer. Um, and so when people question the power of language, <laughs> I mean, there's just, there's no question that that is sort of a life or death kind of power that language can hold. I think that um, when I think about that and and the sort of the way that people talk about people, it, it also, I... There's so much discourse that's really just about, it's like a sports game, you know, mm. people just scoring points against the quote-unquote other side. Now, yeah. you could easily follow that sentence up with some, hey, all two sides are the same. That is not what I'm saying. I did not say that. I know anyone who listen to this knows that, but I'm just saying, like, just because I'm going to say what I'm about to say does not mean I'm saying that both sides are the same, whatever, whatever, right? Uh, it's that, like, who, what the two sides are is a little bit different, right? <laughs> it's, you know, it's not just like, you know, the blue and red stickers. Again, I am not saying that they are the same <laughs> because people will take that and say, oh, you're saying that that's like, that's not what I said. Um, what I am saying, though, is that as harmful and as gross as some of the behavior for the last two years has been among certain folks, a lot of the time when people describe them, they use really ableist language, yeah. right? And they talk about their intelligence, stuff like that. Now, yeah. do I think that they are making good, helpful, you know, healthy decisions for other people? No, I don't think that. <laughs> do I think that they're getting people killed? Sure. Uh, and there are many things you can say that are very deeply critical of these decisions. Um, but when you talk about the intelligence, first of all, it's not true in the sense that they are making conscious decisions. They're just making ones that I disagree with. Uh, and they're very harmful decisions, yeah, but, but like they're not like walking around without any clue of the decisions they're making. So it's just not true because I think it's harder for us to understand that they're making these decisions cogently. Like they're, they're doing this, like they're choosing this, right? Right. right. You know, yes. like it's harder to understand. It's like, but why would you do that? Because I understand science and I'm like, see, what are you saying when you say that? Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, also you don't, because like some of the things that we do are always, you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. And 
I also think if you go online and talk about how unintelligent the people who are doing certain things are, first of all, once you get into the moral, like th there's two aspects of it. There's the ableist aspect of it, where when you do that, you are not going to harm the people you're talking about, but you will downstream harm disabled people because right. they're the ones who are going to be seen as worthless, blah, blah, blah. And then yes. it's the same thing like talking about Trump being fat. It's just like, yeah, but that's not going to hurt him. <laughs> so, exactly. um, but the then there's also the fact that it... Um, so now I lost my train of thought, but I, I was talking. So it harms disabled people when you when you when you refer to people with a lack of intelligence and so forth. And then it also means that when people make decisions that aren't necessarily that, but we're caught up in this moral condemnation of it. Like yes. I, I, and then like sometimes just wrong, like factually. Like I, if you remember back in the in the earlier days, two years ago, like summer of, in the summer of 2020, so not quite two years ago, right? Um, you know, some people started going outside, and then there were people who were on the internet saying, "I haven't left my closet in 65 years." These people, and I'm just like, it turned out you could probably go outside. <laughs> you weren't right you know yeah. <laughs> and uh but we were very caught up in this and i and again i'm not i'm not trying to both sides this i'm saying this many times but i am saying that once you get caught up in condemning people with your language and referring to them as unintelligent you might just be wrong and also right. it doesn't help anything but like you're also like right. it's just factually wrong sometimes it's just like absolutely hey. and this this idea that there are certain things that we can, you know, use as insults that then explain away people's choices and people's behaviors when those choices and behaviors are actually a function of systemic stuff is a huge issue and a huge problem that, of course, always ends up negatively impacting the people who are seen as disposable enough that you can use them as insults, whether that's based on intelligence whether it's based on having a mental health condition, because like everyone's favorite insult is crazy, right? <laughs> when someone is acting in a way that you don't think is the right way for them to be acting, no matter what it is. Um, the whole thing about calling Trump fat, those sorts of things of saying, I have a whole um, blog post that's all about the multi-layers involved in how problematic it is when people call white supremacists crazy, right? Because it's like, no. <laughs> no, that they is actually they're not unintelligent. They're not crazy. People who actually don't have a higher IQ shouldn't be lumped in with racists. Um, that's there's nothing inherently wrong with having a low IQ. That's just another way to be human. Um, and that then sort of puts the blame on the individual of saying, oh, there's something aberrant, there's something aberrant about or abnormal about that individual human being, when in fact. It's a perfectly sane and intelligent way to behave in a racist system. That right? It, it's um. There's a book, Dying of Whiteness. I don't know if you read mm. the book. 
Yeah, and I haven't, but I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, and he talks. I mean, it's what you think it is. He's a doctor. <laughs> he goes through a bunch of reads where people are choosing things and they're just literally dying to uphold whiteness, right? Yeah. And he has a line towards the end of the book talking about like people are abandoning common sense to do these things. He didn't call. He doesn't call him mentally ill, right? Like he's a psychologist and he's, he knows what to say. But then in my book, I quote that and I say. I don't want to disagree with him, but I think this might actually be the most common of senses <laughs> because it's just, I mean, it's something like, I don't remember exactly what I said in the book, but it's something yeah. like that. Um, yeah. Because it's, it's, um, it's hard to sit with the fact that it, what I find interesting and in the research I've done in the interviews of, because like my dissertation is about white people who chose things differently. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Not to make them out to be heroes. And in fact, that's actually the point is that when I, you see depictions of white people who choose things differently. And there are some who genuinely do. Right. Um, and this could be go for gender and so forth, but I'm talking about race here. Um, it's presented in an uncomplicated fashion in the sense that they, you, I, I would get the impression from seeing stories of white people who chose to do things differently, that they had this innate sense of injustice since they were like three years old and they just kept doing stuff. Right. And it's like, it's not, all the people I talk to, and they're not like trying to be heroes. They're just teachers or, or, or academics or whatever. Um, not a single one of them really got deep into thinking about these issues until they were like 20. Because mm-hmm. the system is not set up that way. Even if they That's had, right. you know, and not, only two of them had parents who did like overtly racist stuff. Most of their parents were either color evasive or they really did try. They just didn't have the language to say the right things in the 80s and right. whatever. Right. Um, and these people have made different decisions as adults, you know, and um, you, you have to turn away from the master narrative that's pushed on you. Like it right. has to be a conscious choice to turn away from the story you've been given. That's right. You know, yeah, and absolutely. and it goes for any of these things. You know, my mm-hmm. my research is on race, but it, it, it's 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 um it's true for any of these things, and it's not easy to do that because every message is the opposite of that. You know, right. um, and I commend anyone who's who's at least trying to turn away from it. That doesn't mean they're going to be perfect; they're going to screw up. But um, but you know, like that's it's hard. I've had to do yeah. it too because I grew up thinking. Um, not consciously, but thinking, you know, looking back, I clearly thought that I could like achieve my way out of racism. Totally. And it's all, it's like in some ways, certain aspects of racism, I was protected from because of my class status, but then certain aspects of it, I wasn't protected from at all. And also because we have such a narrow definition of these things. But what is racism? And like well, the, the silliest argument I get to on the internet is there are these older white gentlemen who follow me around the internet and question my work because um, I don't define racism in their older white gentleman way, which is like like wow. ra- racial slurs and lynching, right? You know, like that's yeah. it. They're not, not that they're doing that. But then right. I'll point out that them being condescending to scholars of color and only scholars of color is a function of racism. And they're like, I can't believe that you said that. that was so they follow me around the Internet. I have them blocked now, but they just keep of showing course. up. Of course. That's uh, one of my all time least favorite things that people will do with language is to say my definition is better than your definition or, you know, you're not using words in the way that I think you should be using words. Um, no matter what they're trying to accomplish, it's never a good argument, right? 
and you know being able to point to the dictionary and say well the dictionary says that the definition of misogyny is hatred of women and it's like well the dictionary is wrong <laughs> who do you think wrote the dictionary men <laughs> you know and there's been just reams and reams of the ink and pixels spilled over what the definition of racism is instead of allowing for the fact that this is a complex concept that shows up in very complex ways that you actually have to you have to actually explore it in a deeper way than just a phrase that might appear in any particular definitional setting i think that um one of my least favorite sets just sort of group of words that people use it, it, just sort of dismissively is when they call things like evil or like yeah. this sociopaths or psychopaths, which are also, they're not actually diagnoses. So, right. so I don't know. And then um, I was listening to this um, podcast about Henry Kissinger and the person, not the person reading the story, but the person reacting to it, the guest just keeps saying that he was a psychopath, was, is a psychopath. And like, you know, maybe I guess, but that still makes it inhuman, right? right. That's like right. once now I have my sympathy for Henry Kissinger. Yeah, that person from <laughs> right, us. and um, especially given that, like, uh, this is not again. I'm not trying to defend Henry Kissinger before somebody of comes after me, but like he was also clearly traumatized because his family left, like the Nazis like yeah. <laughs> it's not complicated I mean it's a shame what happened but like it's not there's no excuse it's the same way that like Donald Trump barely had parents like it's not like these you know these it's 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 this is not to say that it excuses the terrible things that people do it's just right. it's hard to sit with the fact that, and because what that what that means is like there, but for the grace of God go I. Like I'm not religious, but like it, it's, it's just yeah, it's just exactly. like if you know sometimes when I read stories about people who do bad things, and then I read what happened beforehand, I'm not saying that makes it okay or anything like that. But I am saying like sometimes I feel like this person never really had a chance, <laughs> you know. Yeah, they're just like they—they yeah. they never, they never had. They're just like if the people where those things happen and they don't—that—that's remarkable, you know. Right. That doesn't make it right. doesn't make it okay. I'm not saying that. Just, right. Yeah, um, and then when you have this perfect storm of like you were talking about the master narrative, I just—it's such a—it's such a good frame to talk about just how we're all just swimming through this this master narrative, this story. And, you know, if we're not actively looking for it, if we're not actively trying to figure out what that story is, it's just the operating system running in the background over and over again, and we don't start trying to tell a different story, then we can't help but act in ways that have been prescribed for us by this master narrative, which is why words are so meaningful to me, because language is all about story. It's all about storytelling. It's all about how do we start to tell a different story, use different words, and change reality by doing that, which is cool. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's what they're so mad at. I mean, there's obviously like a, you know, AstroTurf funding thing going on, but that's why they're so mad about CRT, because it's challenging the master yes. narrative, right? Yes, it's exactly. just, I mean, it's not really telling a different story. It's just telling the real story. <laughs> but... Right, telling the story in a different way. Yeah, 
you know, but telling the story from different perspectives. That need to be told. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, the fact, and the, you know, one of the ways people sort of try to pick at critical theories is, you know, that they're seen as less empirical, right? Mm. But they're not trying to produce numbers per se. Um, They're just trying to tell different stories or the way that, um, you know, if you, or even the way that qualitative researchers get less funding than than quantitative researchers, right? Um, And I had a professor be kind of dismissive about, not CRT, this is before all that, but um, what culture sustaining pedagogies, because they, they, you know, people like, but there's no, where's the list of what they are? And I'm just like, do you, that's not the point. (laughs) You know, I don't know what to tell people sometimes. And I I resist this. I have mentioned this a few times on my show now, which you haven't heard because they haven't come out yet. But um, I was working on an article last fall and it got sent back for a resubmission, which is fine. And then, we were trying to talk about like anti-racism and language teaching, which is, you know, kind of where I sit a lot of the time. And they wanted us to end it with like, you know, main takeaways, which is fine, but they wanted us to put like a checklist together for the people to follow. And I'm just like, if you put a checklist in an article about anti-racism, they're just going to skip to the checklist. And yeah. <laughs> like, that's what people do. They're just like, but like, I understand people are overworked, but that's why you don't put the checklist in there. Right. right. Like my, my book has, seven big recommendations for the field and not a single one of them is like a thing you could just do right Right. the field could make these changes tomorrow but it would it's not going to be the the work that one person can do so i you know i I just some part of me just thinks i'm being stubborn but like i really do think there's a point in like resisting that that you know overarching structure yes um, I, 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 I don't think that any, not any, but many of the structures under which we sit are, are, are really supportive of the people in them. Even the people who are at the top of the structure, exactly. it's not, they're not having that much fun up there. Um, <laughs> they're only having fun because they're above us. But like, if we weren't here then they wouldn't, like, they, you know what I'm saying? Obviously, they have certain privileges that we don't have. They get to do whatever they want. But, I mean, it's just, like, they're not... One of the things that I talk about towards the end of the book is is how people need there to be something wrong with other people to feel better about themselves. Mm. You know? Yeah. It's, it's just, like, um, it's not just that you're better than them. It's that they have to be worse than you in some fundamental way um because then it's much easier to go to sleep and um it it, and it's a you know even not even that many years ago i still i'm sure i fell into that much more often because i uh you know i was just like wondering what to do with my life and you know there's part of you that goes to well at least i got this right but how much of well at least i've got this is really well, at least they don't have this. <laughs> right, right. Or at least I'm not as right. bad as that. Right. In this fun, this some sort of, sort of some sort of fundamental way, which yeah, is a tempting slippery slope. And I don't, I don't think that 
um, it's it's like having that feeling isn't necessarily the problem. It's right. What what happens after the feeling? Because right. having the feeling, you probably can't control it. it, it it's um, yeah. So you know, I think about a lot of those things, and I appreciate sort of the work that you're trying to do. Um, do you you ever get pushback from clients when you're doing this work? Or are they, or do they kind of know who you are? So they only go to you. It's kind of how I feel about what I do. I like, you know, white, I, I specifically, it says whiteness on us. You can't be mad. I'm talking about that. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I think at this point I'm, I'm, I feel really grateful that I've been able to sort of, uh, develop, uh, a, a sort of clientele and also a sort of niche for myself that I tend to attract clients who really do want me to push them and want me to help them use language in, in the ways that most align with their values. Um, but earlier in, <laughs> earlier in my, my career as an editor, editor, I would get pushed back all the time. I would get clients saying, you know, basically what they wanted was they wanted, I'm very good at finding typos. So they really wanted me to just find their typos and not tell them they were using the word diverse oppressively, not tell them, you know, it really would be great if you could not say, he slash she and the opposite gender everywhere, you know, those sorts of things. They, they, they wanted to keep being able to use language the way they always had. And they absolutely pushed back against me making very small <laughs> nudges in the right direction. Um, but it's not something I can turn off. So I would just keep gently offering suggestions, um, within reason, depending on how far I felt like I could push a particular client. Um, but I am grateful that I get to work now with people who really want what I bring, as opposed to just begrudgingly <laughs> hire me anyway, <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's so. there's people where I give talks and so forth, where I can tell they're not necessarily wanting me to go for the deep ball, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I just try to stick it in there somewhere because yeah. Well, and it's it's meaningful, I think, to be able to do that work with folks who really do need a little bit more of a push. Um, and honestly, I think that's why I was drawn to the idea of being a radical copy editor from the beginning is because it can be very subversive to come in and say, "Oh yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, you know, make it consistent. I'm just gonna find the typos." And then start flagging things and saying, this isn't, this isn't clear. This isn't precise. I think you're talking about black people here, but you're saying minorities. So I think that that's a little confusing. So you can start to do that sort of thing of, of being able to say, actually, you know, this is a best practice over here. And, and I'm not sure you're saying what you mean to be saying. And that can be incredibly subversive. Fact checking can be incredibly subversive. Um, when you do it from that place. And I, I get a lot of joy out of being able to sort of subversively help people, help things <laughs> that go out into the world, um, you know, tell a slightly different story. Well, that seems like a good place. So, Alex, thank mm -hmm. you for joining me on this conversation in this episode. Do you have any final thoughts that you might like to share with the folks? Uh, no, this has been really delightful and a wonderful conversation. If, if folks want to find more about me, you can find me at radicalcopyeditor.com or on Twitter or Instagram at, at 
Zster Alex Gavitan at Z R A L E X K A P I T A N. So right. thanks for having me. And when it goes up, the it'll the ad for your name will be there too. So oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the tweet, you know what I'm saying. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for joining me, and uh, I hope people get something out of this because I certainly did. Thank you, and good luck with your book. I can't wait to read it. Well, everyone's going to hear a whole lot more about that as time gets closer. Good.